Back in the middle 1800s, a young shoe salesman in Boston had the privilege of hearing the gospel. And then shortly after that, the Lord saved him. That shoe salesman started to get busy serving the Lord. A couple years later, he left Boston and he moved to Chicago, where he became a Sunday school teacher. And he developed a burden for the city, and he went out in the city to reach children with the gospel. He built, had so many kids he reached. I think he had 1,500 kids he reached eventually that were in his Sunday school class. They outgrew the building. Well, in time, he decided to go into the full-time ministry. He did. He decided to make a trip to England to study Christian work, see how they did it over there. He went there, and he had something happen in his life that changed him forever after that. He met, a, met an evangelist by the name of Henry Varley. And this evangelist told him a line he was never to forget. He said this to this young former shoe salesman. He said, the world has yet to see what, what God will do with the man who is fully committed to him. The reply was this. I will do my utmost to be that man. That man was D.L. Moody who became an evangelist on both sides of the ocean. Moody said later that his evangelist friend did not say God was looking for a great man or that God was looking for a learned man or that God was looking for a smart man. He was only looking for a man to be fully committed to God. And Moody wanted to be such a man. And he did. He yielded himself to God solely for God's glory, and God used him in an amazing way. But this is what God desires from each one of his people, to be fully and totally committed to him for his glory. And that's what our passage is about. Turn to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2, and I'll read that. He says here, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You know, if we are fully committed to God, if we're not fully committed to God, rather, we won't be able to obey the commands that follow these verses in Romans, in Romans chapter 12 and, and, and going forward. If we're not fully committed to God, we will not be able to minister to the body of Christ as Romans 12, 3 through 8, say we should minister to them. If we are not fully committed to God, as Romans 12, 1 says, we will not love the body of Christ as verses 9 to 13 tell us to. If we are not fully committed to God, we will not be able to uh, love our enemy as verses 14 to 21 tell us to. God is calling all of his people to be fully committed to him. Today we will see four factors that encourage the believer to be totally committed to God. Four factors that encourage the believer to be totally committed to God. The first factor is the basis of total commitment. The basis of total commitment. Look at, look at the context with me, first of all. Notice the word therefore in chapter 12, verse 1. There is a doxology that ends chapter 11. In other words, a praise given to God. That ends chapter 11. That marks the end of a, of a major section in Romans, chapters 9 through 11. 
The word therefore now indicates what's going to happen uh, in the next chapter, and it flows out of what's already been said in chapter 11 and earlier. And that's typical of what Paul does. Paul will write a doctrinal section in his letters, and then he applies that doctrine later on in the book. And that's what he's doing here. He says, look, I've taught you doctrine in the first 11 chapters. Therefore, I want you to live your life based upon the doctrine you've just learned. And so Paul makes an application in chapters 12 and, and going forward. Notice that Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brethren. He addresses the people as brethren, or we would say brothers. Obviously, he's talking to the brothers, the believers in Rome, as he says in chapter 1. But what else can we say about these brothers? Well, how, how do they become this way? Obviously, they're brothers in Christ through their faith, uh, through their faith in Christ and that God is their father. But the point is this, not all men are brothers in Christ. We have a given number of people in this room right now. Do we really think that everyone in this room right now is a brother or sister in Christ? There's a good chance, even though everybody here looks like a believer, as I look in through the room here, I think the percentages are good that not everybody in this room is a true believer in Christ, a true brother or sister in Christ. It used to be at one time people talked about the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. They used to say God's the father of all of us. We're all brothers in Christ. But that's not true. There are brothers in Christ and there are people who are not brothers in Christ. You know, Jesus was talking to some people in John chapter 8 who wanted to kill him. And this is what Jesus said to him. John 8, 41, see it on the screen. He says, you are doing the deeds of your father. These people that didn't like Christ said, they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. They said, look, our father is God, Jesus. I don't know who you're talking about, but our father is God. We belong to God. We're children of God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, throwing doubt into their minds that God could, be, could maybe not be their father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come out on my own initiative, but God sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. They said to Jesus, our father is God. Jesus said, no, I don't think so. Your father is Satan. Telling us that not everybody here, not everybody in the world has God as their father. God may be the creator of all of us. We may be brothers in the human race. But God is not the father of all of us. And we're not all brothers and sisters in Christ. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Think of yourself. Ask yourself, am I a brother in Christ? How do you become one? How do you become a child of God? Well, we've got to realize we've broken God's commandments. We've sinned against him. We've got to realize that we were born with a sin nature. And that it's bent on rebellion against God. That's who, that's who we are. Rebellion against God. We've got to know that the penalty for rebellion against God is eternal hell. We've got to realize that we're helpless to do anything to please God at all on our own. We can't do it. We've got to know that Christ died for our sins and took his punishment upon us, upon himself rather, that we rightly deserve. 
We've got to know that Jesus alone is the Savior. There is no other way. We've got to turn from our sin and fully believe on Christ for salvation. And so Paul here is addressing the brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ. Are you a brother or sister in Christ? You say, yeah, I go to church every once in a while. I'm not asking that. Are you a brother or sister in Christ? Have you come to Christ and repented of your sins and turned to him in faith? If not, this can be the day of salvation for you. And if you need to talk to us about that, come to us later after the service. Talk to one of us about that. We'll be glad to tell you about the gospel. Well, that's some of the context here. He's, he's changing. He's going from one section to the application now. And he gives an exhortation, an exhortation here. He says, I urge you, brothers, I urge you. Paul's urging us to do something. Some translations use the word beg, I beg you, but Paul's not begging us to do something. It's an exhortation. It's not just good advice. It's not just an opinion. It's not something Paul, Paul would prefer for us to do. He's saying, I urge you to do something. Not exactly a command, but close to it. It represents the authoritative will of God, however. What Paul is asking of us is very serious. It's very solemn. So take his urging seriously. Remember, we're speaking, first of all, of the basis, the basis of total commitment. What is that? It is the mercies of God. He says here, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice. The phrase, by the mercies of God, is best understood here as because of the mercies of God or in view of the mercies of God. The, the basis for us to yield ourselves to God as a living sacrifice is because of the mercies that God has shown toward us. That's why we would yield ourselves to him because God, think about it, God has been incredibly merciful to all of us in this room, has he not, in many ways. Whether you know the Lord or not, he's been incredibly merciful to you. But believers in Christ, he's been more merciful to them even. Paul has been speaking of the mercies of God throughout the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 11. And the subject of the mercies of God goes back not only to the previous section, 9 through 11, but the whole book of Romans. He's been merciful to us in so many ways. Where do we start to talk about the endless mercies of God? Well, let's give a few examples here as we look in the book of Romans just a little bit. The first example in, in, uh, in Romans, Romans 3.24, talks about justification. Being justified, it says, as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Justification. In other words, God declares a person uh, righteous in Christ. Uh, he declares that person righteous in Christ. Now, this is after... The Lord had been talking about, Paul had been talking in chapter 3 about what wretched sinners we are. He had said, no one is seeking after God. No one cares about God. Uh, no one wants anything to do with God. We're all sinful before him. But then God says, but if you come to him in faith in Christ, he declares you righteous in Christ. That's an amazing mercy that God has given to us. How merciful has God been to us? What about Romans chapter 4? Uh, he talks about forgiveness, another mercy of God. It says there, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. God has been merciful to us if your sins have been forgiven. 
he's forgiving you of your sins, thank God for the mercy he's bestowed upon you. What about Romans 8.1? It says there, Therefore there is no, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are in Christ Jesus, all our guilt has been wiped away. God's removed it all as far as the east is from the west. And he's wiped away the penalty that goes with it. And he declares us no longer condemned. You're not guilty, he says. So God's been merciful to us. And then when you go through Romans chapter 11, you find out in chapter 11 that God's been merciful to both Jewish and Gentile believers. He's merciful to all, it says. And, you know, we'll never, we'll never serve God as we should until we see and realize how great and how merciful God has been towards us. As we talked about in the Sunday School a little bit today, it says in Lamentations, his mercies never fail. They are new every morning, God's mercies. I'm not saying that we need to pay God back for something he's done for us. God's been nice to us, now we're nice to him. That's not how it works. God's been merciful to us, now we show our gratitude towards him by giving ourselves to him completely. There was once a son who had everything a son could ever want. His father was wealthy and provided for him all that he wanted. But the son was an ingrate. He didn't have any gratitude for all that he had. He didn't appreciate what he, ever, what he had at, at the house. And so he said to his father, Father, give me my portion of the inheritance. I'm out of here. And he did. He took off. But fortunately for him, after he had wasted all his inheritance on godless living, the father had mercy upon him and allowed him to come back and partake of all his benefits once again. We call that person the prodigal son. The prodigal son. And how often are we like that? Not grateful for what God has done for us. Not grateful for his mercies. Not considering what he's done for us. How ungrateful can we possibly be not to, to realize the mercies that God has shown to us? Have you, have you forgotten what God has done for you in Christ? Have you forgotten? Have you not thought about that? Have you become ungrateful? Do we allow the distractions of the world to take us away from the thoughts of how merciful God's been to us? Think about the mercies of God. Think about them. Think about them throughout the week. Think about them every day. Count your many blessings. And let that motivate you to be fully committed, committed to God. The greater our understanding of God's mercies, the greater will be your commitment to God. The basis of total commitment is the mercies of God. That's the first factor to be considered. The second factor to be considered is the nature of total commitment. The nature of total commitment. And when I say the nature of total commitment, I mean what is its character? What is its, or its qualities? What is the makeup of total commitment? How do we describe it? Well, first of all, it's sacrificial. Look at the second half of verse 2 here. It says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Notice those terms. They all have to do with sacrifice. Paul is now applying the sacrificial language of the Old Testament to the people, the Christians in Rome. Look at those words. They're all sacrificial terms. Present, living, holy, sacrifice, acceptable, worship. All terms relating to Old Testament sacrificial thought. Paul says, present your bodies as a sacrifice. Now, obviously, 
we don't present animal sacrifices to God these days as they did in the Old Testament. We don't do that anymore because Christ is the final sacrifice for our, our sin. He fulfilled all that that pointed to from the Old Testament, right? But sometimes the New Testament uses this type of language and applies it to believers, the language of sacrifice. For example, look at Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, verses 15 to 16. Hebrews 13, 15 to 16. It says, through him, through Christ then, let us continually offer up a what? This is the New Testament. Offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. These are the kind of sacrifices God wants, right? He wants praise given to him. He wants thanksgiving offered to him. He wants us to be a blessing to other people. That's what he wants. But in Romans 12, we see something more fundamental than that, even. A fundamental sacrifice. He wants something more than just what we can do or say. He wants us He wants our very lives. Why? Because the nature of total commitment is sacrificial. Notice the words that Paul uses. Look at the word present there. Present your bodies a living, holy sacrifice. It means to offer. That word present means to offer a sacrifice. The word is is functioning like a command, and the sacrifice is to be offered to God. And what do we offer to, to him? He says offer our bodies to him. And... By the way, the word bodies is not only referring to this outward uh, physical portion, but he's speaking of the whole person here. He says, offer your whole person to God. It stresses the commitment of the, the whole person. I like what John Calvin said here about this statement. He says, by bodies, he means not only our skin and bones, but the totality of all that we are. The commitment embraces our entire being. So God wants every bit of us, nothing held back at all. Notice the word sacrifice here when he says to present our bodies as a sacrifice. Um, By the way, we don't like to hear the word sacrifice, do we? Because it sounds so so sacrificial, doesn't it? You mean we've got to sacrifice something? Yeah, our lives to God, right? You know what that means? If we offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, it means we're no longer our our own property. We're God's property. What he has saved us from our sins, if you know him, but now we're willingly offering ourselves to him for his service. And that reminds me of what I heard about the military. And by the way, I have nobody in mind here when I'm saying this, not Neil or anybody else here. Uh, I really don't. But once you sign up with the military, whether it's Air Force or Navy Marines, uh, Army, and I don't want to leave any service out, or anybody else, any other service, Coast Guard and so on. You are the property of the United States government. Did you know that? Uh, My wife, Sandy, grew up in a military home. Her dad was in the Air Force, retired Air Force. And she always says, you know, once you go into the Air Force, you're what they call a GI. You know what that means, don't you? Government issue. You belong to the government then. And you do what the military says to do from that point on. You go where the military says to go from that point on. If they say, you're going to Afghanistan, guess where you're going to go? You're going to Afghanistan. If they say, you stay put right here, then you're going to stay put right where you are. You're their property. In the same way, although we have a loving Lord to guide us, 
A believer's life is a sacrifice to offer to God. He's God's property then. He belongs to God. He follows the Lord wherever the Lord wants him to go. He does whatever the Lord wants him to do. He's not his own, right? And by the way, that leading will never be contrary to God's word. But always in line with it. Our lives are a sacrifice to God. Now, how does a believer offer himself to God? Or how often, rather? How often does a believer offer himself to God? Some have thought in this verse that it's a definitive once-for-all action never to be repeated. You offer yourself to God, and that's the end of it. Some even think that if you offer yourself to God one time as a sacrifice, you've attained complete holiness for the rest of your life. You're holy from then on. That's not true at all. Nothing could be further from the truth, as a matter of fact. Paul does not say how often we're to do this, but it seems to me that we should offer ourselves to God as often as is necessary. Cranfield, a commentator, says this, this self-surrender has, of course, to be continually repeated. I would think so. I know it does for me. What's wrong with offering ourselves to God as a sacrifice every single day? Wouldn't that be a great thing to do? To come to the Lord every day and say, Lord, I'm yours. I belong to you. You're my Lord. Do with me as you please today. That would be entirely appropriate. And then Paul next gives a description of the type of sacrifice that God wants. And there are three terms he uses to describe the sacrifice. By the way, and those terms are living, holy, and acceptable. All three of those terms follow the word sacrifice in Greek. They all modify the word sacrifice. In English, it doesn't look that way, but that's how it is. They all describe the word sacrifice. The first word is living. Our bodies are to be presented to God as a living sacrifice. What does he mean by that? Well, he's talking about the spiritual state of believers. It says in Romans 6, 4, we are now walking in newness of life. We have a new life in Christ, if you come to know him. Romans 6, 11, we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. We're alive to God in Christ Jesus. And those who are alive to God in Christ Jesus are being called upon to give their lives as a sacrifice to God. And I'm sorry if this is difficult for some of this translation to come through in the sign language, but I'll do the best I can with it. <laughs> this is going to become a way of life for the believer that, that commits himself to God. We're always dying to ourselves, right? And always living for him. I like what Paul said. He said, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus might also be shown and seen by others. Paul lived a life of sacrifice for Christ, but through that, God was glorified. So we're to be a living sacrifice. Secondly, we're to be a holy sacrifice, it says. The offerings presented in the, in the Old Testament, they were considered as holy to the Lord. Read that over and over again in the Old Testament. That's how they're normally described. But as believers... We have the righteousness of Christ accredited, accredited to our account when we become uh, believers in Christ. Christ gives us his righteousness. We, he takes our sin and credits us with his righteousness. So our position in Christ is one of holiness. But we grow in holiness from then on as well. We continue to grow in holiness. By the way, we don't become holy on our own, ever. We always do this with God working in us. And as we offer ourselves to God... We are being set apart from the world more and more and dedicated more and more to the service of the Lord. So we're to become more and more like Christ. This is the kind of sacrifice God is looking for. 
God says, be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. You know, if you're, if you're living in, think of this yourself, apply it to your own life. If you're living in sin, if you are not confessing your sin, if you're not forsaking your sin, but if you're living in, in sin uh, on a regular basis, what does that tell you? It tells you you're not fully committed to God. Or maybe you're not even a believer. God says the sacrifice we give him is to be holy. And then thirdly, a third term to describe the sacrifice is acceptable. He says you're to provide or give to God a, a sacrifice acceptable to God. The offering of ourselves is to be acceptable, or the word means pleasing, pleasing to God. He doesn't mean that somehow we earn a standing before him. Oh, I've earned my way to God somehow. He's not talking about that. He just wants the sacrifice of our, of our lives to be genuine and real. You know, oftentimes in the Old Testament, people offered animal sacrifices. Time and again, they offered sacrifices, constantly offering, offering sacrifices. But that did, not always God, that did not always make God happy because sometimes he did not take delight in the sacrifices. In fact, sometimes he says, I'm sick of your sacrifices. On one occasion in Isaiah 1, God said to the people, Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Tired of them. <clears throat> Why? Didn't God say to bring animal sacrifices? He did, but he went, he, there's something he, that the people didn't have there. They didn't have the heart that was right with God. Their heart wasn't in it. Their heart was not right with God. And their heart was far away from God, and it showed in their lives. And so God wants our heart, right? Not just an outward sacrifice. The sacrifice that is pleasing to God is sincere. It's sincere with a heart that's truly committed to him. You know, it's easy to go through the motions, right? Go to church. we got to go to church this Sunday, right? we got to go to church. We have to listen to the sermon and endure through that somehow so we can get to the afternoon meal. We've got to pray a prayer while we're there, right? But don't we have to go through these religious ceremonies? But does God have your heart? Or are you only going through the motions? We want, we're to be a sacrifice acceptable to God. Total, total commitment to God is sacrificial. But it's also logical. It's reasonable. Wait a minute, you say sacrifice to God, sacrificing ourselves to God is, is logical? That doesn't sound very spiritual, doesn't it? Does it? Because Paul says here, Give yourselves to God because this is your spiritual service of worship. But I'm saying that it's our logical worship. Why? Because this word spiritual is used only twice in the New Testament. It's, it's difficult to translate the word. But the King James has it right on this. When they translate it, this is your reasonable service to God. That's how it should be translated. It's not saying that, that what we're doing here, giving ourselves to God, isn't spiritual. It is spiritual. But Paul's point is this. It's logical to give yourselves to God. Why? Look at what he's done for you. Isn't it only reasonable to give yourself to him in light of all his mercy shown to you? Isn't it only rational to give yourself to him in light of all he's done for you? It's the height of being irrational not to commit yourselves to God, right? It is totally illogical for a believer not to give his entire life to God in service for him. It doesn't make any sense at all. It's illogical. It only makes sense to give our lives to God. 
How foolish, how foolish it is, how unreasonable can we be not to devote our entire lives to him. He says this is our worship. By the way, this phrase, best translated simply, your reasonable worship. This is your reasonable worship to give yourself to God. Another term, by the way, the word worship, taken from the Old Testament and in its sacrificial system, the fundamental idea, the fundamental sin, rather, is the failure to worship God. You remember the passage in Romans 1 that talks about the people that were committing idolatry and engaging in all kinds of sin? It says in verse 25 there, these people worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. They were idolaters. They failed to worship God. They didn't, dishon they didn't honor him, but dishonored him instead. On the other hand, those who truly worship God will honor him with their entire lives, right? So giving your life to God in worship is, is, is the believer's supreme act of worship. There's no greater worship that you can commit or have than to give your life to God. You can pray, preach sermons, and all of it. But if you haven't given your life to God, you're not really worshiping God. We've seen so far the basis of total commitment, which is the mercies of God, and the nature of total commitment. That it's sacrificial, it's logical, right? The third factor, the demands of total commitment. The demands of total commitment. We have two demands or commands listed here in verse 2, the beginning of verse 2. One is negative, the other is positive. He says, do not be conformed to the world, but he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let's look at the de negative demand first. He says in verse 2, do not be conformed to this world. This world is literally this age. It's the age we're now living in. Why age? Because it's in contrast with the age to come. There's an age to come called the blessed age or the eternal life. But the age we're living in now is not the blessed age. It's one characterized by evil, it says in, in the New Testament. It's one under the direction of Satan. This world is under the direction of Satan. And it's filled with evil, right? You see this all the time. Satan is the god of this world, the little g. Little g, god of this world. The world is temporary. It's passing away. It's opposed to the things of God. And Paul says, do not be conformed to this evil age, this world system under the control of Satan. Originally, that word conform meant to be shaped or formed into something like maybe a potter would shape a vessel of some kind the way he wanted to. Uh, and it means to allow yourself to be changed, to be like something else. You know, if you're conformed to this age, if you are conformed to this present world, and you're living in conformity with the present evil world, you're becoming more and more like it. There was a Bible paraphrase that came out years ago. And I love, I love how he paraphrased this verse. He said this, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. He said, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. That's the paraphrase of verse 2. He's not just talking about outward appearances, by the way, like modest dressing, which we should do, women should do that, or, or watching movies, uh, which, by the way, uh, we don't want to watch the God dishonoring movies either. But he's not just talking about those kind of things, that we can make a long list of stuff like that, right? But he's talking about our thinking patterns as well. Adopting the thinking patterns of the world. You know, 
and you hear it at work or wherever you might be, you hear things like, there's nothing wrong with being gay. Well, according to God, there is. He says it's a sinful lifestyle. And I could give a million examples here. The world says there's nothing wrong with abortion. But God says, no, life is sacred. You shouldn't take another's life. The world says we got here by evolution. And God says, no, I created the world. The problem is Christians buy into the, what they hear out there. They buy into it. And they start adopting the philosophies of the world and the thinking patterns of the world. Oh, yeah, yeah. You say it's like that. It must be that. It must be so. Yeah, let's all blend in with each other here. But God's people are to be dis distinct and different, right? The word of God is different. Don't, don't forget, don't forget. The world is under the power of Satan. He wants you to think a certain way. But God says, don't think that. We're in the world, right? We're in the world, but what? We're not of the world. We're to be different. Do you find yourself caving into the world's philosophies? You hang out with your friends at school or people at work, and they say, yeah, you know, I believe this. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. I believe it too. Don't, don't fall into that trap of being conformed to the world, conformed to this evil age. Think differently. And he says that in the next, in next, in the next command here, a positive command. Verse 2, he says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we have a contrast here. The word transform means to be changed in form, to be changed from one form to another. We get, you heard of the word metamorphosis? We get our English word metamorphosis from this, this Greek term here. You all know, and <laughs> I failed on this once before on this illustration. You all know that a caterpillar builds a cocoon around itself, right? And then eventually turns into a butterfly. That's how it actually does. <laughs> Not my previous illustration on that one. The caterpillar transforms into a butterfly, correct? That's the kind of thing he's saying here. You remember when Jesus was transformed before his disciples in Matthew 17? It says here, it says in that chapter that his face shone like the sun. His garments became white as light. And that word transformed, same word in Matthew 17 is, is used here in Romans 12 too. In the same manner, in the same manner as that, believers are to be transformed in their lifestyle, to become different, to become more like Christ. And this is both a command and a passive idea as well. We're commanded to become like this, but we're also to be under the control of the Holy Spirit to transform us to be more like Christ and less like the world. How do we go about this process? It says by the renewing of our mind. Believers are changed as their thinking is changed. As your thinking becomes more like God, then you're changed. When you didn't know the Lord, you thought a different way than you do now. You thought according to the standards of the world. But now you think according to God's thoughts. And when our thinking is changed, guess what happens? our behavior will follow, right? It'll change as well. And we won't be conformed to the world, but we will be transformed by renewing of our minds. And by the way, this is not just positive thinking. We're, oh, i got to think positive now. Mark says i got to think positive and quit thinking negative thoughts. I'm not talking about that. we got to think God's thoughts, which is far more than positive thinking. It's thinking according to the way God wants us to think. John 17, 17, Jesus said this, Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. How are we to change our minds and our thoughts by being saturated with the word of God? I had the privilege of talking to Alice in Sunday school, just a private conversation, and I said, she had her Bible open, I said, what do you, uh, 
What are you studying, Alice? She said, oh, many things. She's always studying the Bible. And she said to me, you know, I love the Word of God. I love it. I can't get enough of it. In so many words, she said this. I said, wow, what a great testimony. It encouraged me for me to hear that. That's the kind of thing we're to be, transformed by the renewing of our minds, like, like Alice, was, Alice was saying. So saturate our minds in the Word of God. And we ha- we've got to reprogram our minds because our, our minds are being programmed a certain way, whether you want to think so or not. Somebody or something is, transfor- is programming your mind. The world is or God is, one of the two. And your, ne- your mind needs to be reprogrammed, get the junk of the world out, not by a preacher, but by the Word of God. That needs to transform your mind. How are we doing on this? Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to work in your life for transformation? Are you spending time in the Word of God every day to, to learn to think more like God does? You say, I didn't get anything out of the Bible today. Well, the more you read it, the more you begin to think like God does. Only by meditation on the Word and by doing what it says are we going to be totally transformed, right? What the psalmist say? Your Word I've hidden my heart that I might not want. Sit against you, right? Transformation. So we've seen three factors that encourage us to be totally committed to God. The basis of total commitment, the nature of total commitment, and the demands of total commitment. And finally, the fourth factor, the results of total commitment to God. He says in the end of verse 2, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So that you may prove. You do all these things. You give your life to God as a sacrifice. You have your mind transformed by the word of God. For what purpose? For what, what results? So that you may prove, or better, so that you may approve, approve what the will of God is. What does that mean? Approving the will of God is agreeing with what God says. And, and also, uh, I'm sorry, it, it means to understand and agree with what God says. And then seeking to put that into practice. If we approve of the will of God, we're saying, God, you're right. Your word is right. And I'm talking about the word of God ultimately here. Your will is right. I'm going to follow it. You say, what if I disapprove of the word of God or the will of God? doesn't matter. If you disapprove of the will of God, you're living in disobedience to God. He's not asking about your disapproval. He's asking about your approval. And those who commit themselves to God will approve of the will of God. They'll realize, oh, this is the way to live. This is the way to go. This is, this is the way to be blessed. I want to follow God's word. And you'll realize it's good, it's acceptable, and it's perfect. And the will of God here, as I said, is the, is, the, is the revealed word of God. And a believer who's totally committed to God will not fight against the will of God, right? He won't fight against that. He'll embrace it gladly. And what we want to understand is, is how the, word of God, the will of God is described here. It's described by three phrases. First of all, he says the will of God is good. However much the mind may be opposed to it, and however much you think that it interferes with your pleasure and enjoyment, it's still good. And when we say it interferes with my enjoyment of life, what we're saying is it interferes with my sin. I want to sin and do wrong, and I don't want God interfering with my life or his word, right? But the will of God is good. The will of God may be difficult. Understand this, too. It may be difficult. It may be tough. It may be hard. But it's still good. Always keep that in mind. The will of God is good. The will of God, secondly, is acceptable. And that's the same word used in verse 1. It means well-pleasing. The will of God is well-pleasing. 
should be well-pleasing to us because certainly it's well-pleasing to God, right? It's his will. So it should also be pleasing to us. And as long as our plans line up with God's will, then we're pleasing to him as well. And then thirdly, the will of God is perfect. It's perfect. It's complete. It's everything it needs to be. Nothing needs to be added to it. Uh, it's all we need for life and godliness. The word of God is perfect in and of itself. Nothing needs to be added to it. So these are the results of being totally commit, committed to God. We will realize that the will of God is a great thing, and we need to follow him. Well, let me ask you a question as I, as I close. Do you think if you commit yourself to the Lord that it's going to be a great burden for you to live under? I ask that because we've looked at words like sacrifice. That's a tough word. Words like holy. Words like not being conformed to the world. That means i got to be different from the world and my friends. You think that it would be a burden to be committed to God completely. Well, let me tell you the words from David Livingston, a missionary to Africa in the 1800s. You may have heard of him, famous missionary to Africa. David Livingston said this. He said, for my own part, I have never ceased to rejoice. I've never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to this task of being a missionary. Listen to this. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending much of my life in Africa. This is in the 1800s before they had all the modern medicines and hospitals and all that. Can that be called sacrifice? which is simply paid back as a small part of a great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? What had he done? He had thought about the mercies of God and realized, I can't repay that debt ever. He goes on to say this, Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward and healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Can that be considered a sacrifice that you're on God's track now and he's blessing you away with the word and with such a thought it is emphatically no sacrifice it is rather a privilege to be committed to God sure he says anxiety sickness suffering or danger now and then and foregoing the common conveniences of this life <clears throat> may make us pause and cause the spirit to, to waver and the soul to sink but let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory that shall be revealed in and for us. He says in his final sentence, I have never made a sacrifice. Hmm. That's strange because when you read his biography, the whole thing is about sacrifice. For example, David Livingston's shoulder was crushed by a huge lion in Africa. His arm was just hanging off it by a thread after that. His body was racked by many fevers in Africa. He contracted rheumatic fever, which hurt him physically in many ways. Why did he say, I've never made a sacrifice? And I could go on and on about the sacrifices he made. So why did, why did he say, I've never made a sacrifice? Why did he have this perspective, this outlook? Because he had committed himself to God as a living and holy and acceptable sacrifice. He was God's property. He knew he was God's property. He belonged to God, 
And he never thought any other way about it, except I want to, I want to serve the Lord and I want to do it gladly. And he went through all kinds of unbelievable trials as a result. He didn't think of it that way, though. When you think of all the Lord has done for you, is it too much for you to give up yourself to him completely and totally? Yes, it is sacrificial. Yes, there are demands that God makes upon us. But this is all from the Lord who loves us, right? Remember, the will of God is what? It's good. It's acceptable. It's perfect. It only stands to reason then that we would be totally committed to him. Let's pray. Well, we are grateful for your word once again and uh, how it instructs us. Um, and we just pray we take uh, from your word today what you'd have us to hear. And it's very clear what you'd have us to hear. You want us to be committed to you. And we pray that we'll put aside anything that's distracting us right now. And we just pray we commit our lives to you for the rest of our lives to walk with you, to serve you, to love you, to honor you, to do your will, because we know it's a good will to do. And we're grateful for all you've done for us, Lord. And so we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.